0: Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest Richard James Allen is a true Renaissance man. He's the author of more than 11 books of poetry, fiction, performance text. He's been shortlisted for the Kenneth Slessor Prize for Poetry, former artistic director of the Poets Union, Inc., a director of the inaugural Australian Poetry Festival. He's also a dancer, choreographer, filmmaker, yoga instructor, and performer for stage and screen. Um, Probably lots of other things as well, and also the author of the newly released poetry book, The Short Story of You and I. Richard, welcome.
1: Uh, Well, thank you so much, Maggie. It's delightful to be here.
0: So before we begin talking, um, I, I feel like the minute I opened your book, I was welcomed in. And, uh, and I feel like I want to give readers that, uh, that joy as well. So could I please ask you to open the show with Delicate Awakening, which is the opening of your book, and perfect opening, I might say.
1: Oh, thank you very much. I'd be thrilled. Delicate Awakening. Getting me out of sleep must be done delicately like raising an ancient shipwreck slowly and in one piece up from the seabed. Once I'm awake, I can be present, magnificent, but keep an eye on me as all my separate pieces yearn to fold back into the sea. You know, I think the thing about this poem, Delicate Awakening, which, which um, opens the book, is is it's trying to invite the reader into um into the sort of liminal um, fluid consciousness that I'm trying to explore in the book the next poem Schlafwagen and Wunderkammer, is, is about someone in a in a uh, a sleeping car traveling overnight through Europe and their mind sort of moves from different things to different things and I think these these poems are trying to to bring us into um, let's say, Altered alternative states of consciousness that, that flow through flow through the book. So I'm trying to sort of warm people into that and the, the sort of half-awake, half-asleep um, odd and interesting qualities that come from that.
0: In, in that f- poem in particular, you do that very well. Like you you start with this metaphysical and then you take us to someplace very specific and very visual in a way that feels almost film- filmic.
1: Yeah, well, I think... I mean film, film is a uh, I think it was George Miller who said cinema is public dreaming um i think um I think that the I think the, the poem is trying to bring us to different states where we're not just our normal you know normal everyday selves but we start to touch on other states of consciousness and feeling that are more metaphysical and I'm interested in that in general i mean I'm interested in i mean I guess I feel in general that um if we just box ourselves into highly, um, normalized, should we say normative, <laughs> to use a trade term, um, sort of materialist lives, then we, we miss out a lot of the possibilities of what we could be as beings. So, um, I'm, I'm interested in sort of opening up some of those cracks to other, other aspects of what we can think and feel and connect to and, um, be be bigger, be broader, be more expansive. Mm. And, um, yeah, these poems are, I guess, trying to c- explore some of that.
0: Yes. I mean, the, the thing I particularly like um, about Delicate Awakening is that you kind of set up this, I, I think of it as almost like Sid Corman esque um, this, um, you know, I'm here because you are, <laughs> because you
1: are. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, it's okay. almost like I'm here... You've woken me up or I, we, we need to we have a relationship together. Well, I mean, I think that the one thing about this book, I mean, the, the epigraph that comes before is my poems are sitting in these pages waiting for you to rouse them. Mm. And then we have the the dedication is for you. And then it goes for delicate awakening. So those are actually flowing one to the other. And I sometimes describe this book as a um, love story in a fractured love story in 57 poems. And I actually count that little epigraph when I say 57, because um, I think it's a kind of a love story between the writer and the reader, Um, maybe an idealized writer, an idealized reader, but, you know, exploring that relationship, which is a very beautiful and intimate relationship. Um, And the book is a very beautiful and intimate form for that. And I think, you know, there are reasons why we should still keep having books as well as uh, you know, performances and, and uh, online things is this kind of very um, personal relationship that, that happens through the medium of the book. And I guess through the that sort of wherever it is relationship between the, the writer and the reader. So yeah, that's a quite interesting point that you make that it's kind of like setting it up like if you're not there, I'm not there either.
0: Yes, yeah, so I'll fall back. <laughs> yeah, exactly
1: you are so smart Maggie it's scary
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so look um, the other thing that I noticed immediately and and I'm not the only one to have said this um, but is the balance obviously in the book between these long quite complicated um, almost exuberant poems and then the utterly condensed the brief. Um, poems. And and to me, um, you've said it was like a heartbeat and, and I can see that. But I almost felt, and, and I said this in my review, that it's a bit like inhalation and exhalation, that there's a kind of motion between that condensation and the
1: expansion. Look, I think I, I those are both really interesting metaphors for it. I, um, I look, put it this way, my previous book, um, Fixing the Broken Nightingale, was in five sections with an introductory, a prologue and an epilogue. And I, I, I've really, I'm very interested in the idea that, that to think of each book as a kind of, I mean, obviously you can just read any poem within the book, but a kind of livre composé idea, a composed book, a, a structure that is unique to that. Um, and I, I was very happy with the way Fixing the Broken Nightingale worked out. Um, but I didn't want to just repeat it. And also I also didn't think the material, uh, warranted being broken up into formal sections. It was more about this this sort of seamless, seamy flow between different states of mind and feeling and consciousness. But at the same time, I was too conscious of the fact that without having those section breaks, I needed to move people through. I needed people to keep going and to want to keep going. So this pulsing action, whether you call it pulsing from the breath or the in and out of the breath or the pulsing of the heart or just an energetic pulsing that allows you to um, go deeply into something quite layered and intense and then have this little break of the short poem, which is you know, snappy and cute and just hits you immediately. I was just really thinking about the... The experience of the reader um, and how they would how they would um, dance with me through the book, or breathe with me through the book, or, or pulse with me through the book, so that so that the, so the rhythm and the energy keeps going. So it's very rhythmic. It's a very rhythmic book.
0: Yes, I love that, and and the motion that you. You create through, you know, even through some of these little scenes. So I think it's probably a good time. And I know it's a long poem. But if you could read Schlafwagen and Wunderkammer um, now, that would be wonderful. It's page 11.
1: Okay, cool. So Schlafwagen and Wunderkammer. Excuse my German. I don't speak German. But just so for those who don't speak German along with me, um, Schlafwagen is German for sleeper or sleeping car. If you've been to Europe, you've seen those. Sleeping cars that travel overnight between countries. And uh, Wunderkammer is this beautiful image of the cabinet of curiosities or the wonder room of which you can find some, some of there as well. You're on the night train to Vienna and you've already arrived in Berlin. You're about to walk home in Sydney and you must dash back out to see the play that is now more popular than Hamlet in London. You are cold in your high sleeper bed that you collapsed into when the night heat came on, suddenly in a rush without getting under the covers that are now cold that you collapsed into. You are wrapped in an old overcoat you don't remember owning, dreaming of trying to stay awake in a high raked hall of a tall-walled university, listening to a lecture on the mechanics of flashback, and your mind keeps wandering to a back shed somewhere beyond the wall in East Germany full of homemade contraptions that were far too unreconstructed ever to be sent to a Dickensian-looking patent office, piled high with yellowing documents that curl like 19th-century moustaches. You are in the long tail of a tall tail, a cat coiled up on itself asleep, the way those big ropes that secure ships to their ports are coiled into perfect circles by nameless foreign seamen, the forever migrant workers circling the globe, only one of whom ever gets off the boat to become Joseph Conrad. Only one of whom ever gets off the boat to become Joseph Conrad. You're being asked by your roommate. Your bunkmate, your companion—what what do you call someone traveling with you on a night train in one of the lower bunks? A person who, for reasons unknown, shall remain nameless, to set an alarm so that she—yes, she—that much you can know—can wake up before the guard, who has no English, comes with the croissants. You're sure? You're reassuring her that you have, not it? may be that you have, but you don't remember in which country or time zone you would have have, have done so, though you like the idea that this act of thoughtfulness may have occurred, and you being the enactor, if not the instigator of it. You're thinking that you may have to be the alarm clock yourself, though your clock hands are still wrapped inside your imaginary overcoat, and not a lot about the rest of you resembles a device for the capture and distribution of time. You're of the opinion that when you fell into the sleep in a cocoon of vibration, you were sure or at least fairly certain that it would be a normal sleep, that is to say, just like any other sleep. But on the contrary, it feels as if you have been having the whole history of consciousness downloaded into the databanks of your body, which for an unspecified period of time have replaced your usual cells. But this is most odd, as you're not sure you believe anymore that consciousness has a history, though you might go so far as so that it gets woven into history, finally realizing that it was only ever a of the aforementioned state over not sure what, really, playing hide-and-seek in the winding corridors and hallways of time and personality, a game it got caught up in but now understands it can step away from any time it wishes to exit time, that is to say, whenever it no longer wishes to be part of the here, and the now, and the then, and the to come. Knock, knock, knock. So the question the God asks you, in English, by the way, is not, would you care for some breakfast? But are you ready? to be awoken from this dream of timelessness or would you prefer to remain in a room of marvels a disembodied spectacular down the rabbit hole of the fantasia elevator taking up semi-permanent residence in the cross-eyed manifesto of time masterpieces of continuous previousness a conspiracy of angels flocking in all directions at the holy speed of intuition as you learn to live in the fantastic space
0: So wonderful, and thank you for reading that. I know it's not an easy poem to read. It's not (laughs) an easy poem to read. Perhaps
1: you could just clean up the messy bits. Um, I doubled fine,
0: But I just, I I didn't mean to kind of put you on the spot because you've got such long sentences without punctuation, but I just, I I really feel that in many ways it kind of encapsulates what you do in this book, which is to kind of play around with, again, you know, what a really kind of narrative-style um, linear progressions I mean it could just be a trip on a train and yet there's a kind of fantastical element about like maybe the timelessness as you talk about of this and how it's almost recurring it's almost permanent it's in the past but it's now and it's just a, it's just you know sort of marvel marvelously done sonically as well as intellectually well thank you
1: well it's definitely um About time, place distortion, isn't it? I mean, you're sort of, as you say, there. You're not there. You're in the past. You're in the future. Time expands. Time contracts. um, Doubles back on itself. Um, Keeping in mind, of course, that time is actually an illusion that we create. So, you know, why not?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. It's it's an illusion, and it's real. One of the lovely coens, which uh, I think feature through the book nicely too.
1: Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, I think it's interesting. I was just having a chat with some, with my daughter, Jadzia actually about the concept of time blindness and that some people are time blind and, um, they can't see time. And that's a state that we, um, we don't, you know, sort of recognize as a serious thing, but, you know, someone like Oliver Sacks would have recognized it. And then is it bad to be time blind? Well, maybe, you know, if time is, um, you know, a sort of a fairly rigid structure that we've agreed on, but actually constructed and relates to a whole series of social and political ideological structures, well, maybe someone who's time blind is actually someone who can access something more close to what time really is or what's behind time or you know I don't know the answers but I like thinking about things like this
0: yes and you know is that what we're striving for when we meditate for example to just temporarily
1: exactly well you're definitely trying to um, you know I mean I remember uh, Joseph Campbell saying something like uh, what was it a beautiful phrase Um, uh, sorry just have to think for a sec it was um, it was something along the lines of um, oh yeah eternity has nothing to do with time. Eternity has nothing to do with time. And I thought, what does he mean? It's so complex. And then I realized, well, my thought about it was that he's saying that when you're accessing, say, in meditation or in altered states of consciousness of various kinds, you're accessing ideas of eternity, they are outside of the whole time concept. Yeah,
0: it's like saying black has nothing to do with color. (laughs)
1: <laughs> exactly exactly so um
0: and yet it's and central it, to our idea of what time is
1: eternity well yeah it, it is and and also central <coughs> to our ideas of what you know all kinds of ideas about life death after life spirituality deities of various kinds you know when we're you know so i think he talked about um that idea of experiencing uh Experiencing, again, I can't remember the exact words because it's been a while, but, you know, experiencing both of those things simultaneously and experiencing the timeless in the time. And that sort of dual consciousness is what a lot of um, yogic spirituality is about, um, this idea of the jivan mukta, the person who's able to live fully in the world, um, but also... Be in touch with the eternal at the same time so that's a beautiful beautiful concept that um comes up yes. quite often in these texts yeah
0: and in a scientific sense you know it's also kind of quantum <laughs> and there's a lot of well quantum, it is yes a lot of quantum yeah. in the book.
1: it relates exactly to to quantum theory and the way it's now being described between um between you know uh, the traditional physics and quantum physics and how they uh yes the the quantum physics collapses into the into the traditional physics when we try to focus on it and see it and capture it in time but actually that's just one photograph in the longer waves of of energy or whatever in uh excuse me if my quantum physics isn't perfectly described but yeah uh, they're they're simultaneous but they're different ways of seeing something Yes. Yeah, so they're both happening at the same time. And I think that's a an idea that is deeply behind um, this sort of spirituality, Buddhism and yoga um, and mysticism in general that I'm very interested in, um, this idea of this sort of this double vision, this um, being able to trying to exist on these parallel planes yeah
0: Mm. and you clearly play with it in the book superposition
1: yeah i play with it in the books yeah i mean i don't consider myself an enlightened being i consider myself someone who's fascinated by the idea and the ideas and interested to play with them and and often it's about um my failure to achieve those things but that they're interesting journeys and experiments along the way
0: Yes, which is the joy of being a, a poet because you can play with these things without having to actually get the maths to work.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it's one of the great things about being creative is that you can uh, you can try and experiment and fail in a creative and interesting way and you also don't have to be... It's not like writing a history essay. It's not about the exact facts. It's about your interpretations and as much about the questions as the answers. That's right. In fact, probably more about the questions than the answers because the answers are only – the answers are like those – like the traditional physics. They're just one picture and actually can be answered from many different times and different points of view. So the questions are the more interesting ones. The bigger pictures are the more interesting things.
0: That's it. The answers are the observer effect. So they freeze something but they lose everything
1: Exactly. And then every, I mean, because I studied history and the, my main thing I drew from history was every single generation looks at the same thing with a different point of view. And so there's always going to be multiple truths about any event, any any uh, moment, any any debatable question. And so there's a kind of limited interest in kind of, to me, in identifying with one of those and fighting for it because I'm much more interested in the plural, plural plurality of voices, and if anything, bringing them together, but also um, the creative space gives you a chance to, to look at the bigger questions without kind of getting caught up in the the limited answers.
0: Yes. So I think now is probably a great time for you to read The Man in the Quantum Mask, if yes, that's all right. Ah, 27. of
1: course. 57, yes. What, well, that's that? a good example of what I was saying. I've actually never read this out loud before. Oh, exclusive! This is a this is a first. (laughs) Um, The man in the quantum mask. Sometimes, when I look into the fabric of space time, I see a surface that can bend and bounce like a trampoline. Other times, I see a surface so delicate it could shred like tissue paper. What if I only exist within the walls of this incarnation? What if I am merely a product of these three-dimensional coordinates? What if when I finally step outside this warped prison of time and space, I find myself disappearing? Or rather, I find nothing at all, since I am no longer there to find it.
0: I love that. And, and just how funny, too, some of these poems are. Um, do you find people are picking that up, or are they kind of lost in the intensity?
1: Um, it's interesting. I did a reading the other day and someone said, Oh, when you read the poems, I realized how funny they were. When I read them to myself I thought they were slightly whimsical, but when you read them they were I was laughing out loud. And then I thought, Oh, maybe I'd overplay it. Um look, I, I'm I love humor. I I, I you know, I, I think um it's not an original thought, but I think humor and tragedy are, are very connected. I, I don't think that um something being humorous makes it less worthy. Um, I think it means that you're dealing if really interesting humor deals with some actually very serious topics, but in a way that maybe has a lightness and playfulness that allows us to access it, uh, which we, in ways we might not otherwise, not that I, you know, not interested in tragedy and very serious takes on things, but I think the humor can sometimes, you know, allow us a way into things and give us a, give us some space around it. And also, you know, one of the things I'm very interested in is not taking myself too seriously. Um, and I just don't think we should any of us take ourselves too seriously. Uh, you know, because we're so limited, it's like that would be pretty silly to take ourselves too seriously. So um, So being able to kind of play with that and have a bit of self-deprecation in the process and not yeah, that's okay with me.
0: Well, I, su- I suppose too, and again, this is—we've talked about this—but this is um, the complexity that you want to, I guess, retain through the work and not have it necessarily resolve into one thing or the other, but to allow that kind of multiplicity to exist in that open I, space.
1: I think that's right. I was looking at, you know, when I was preparing this last reading, I was thinking, oh, it's so interesting. A lot of these poems really don't resolve. What I'm really trying to do is. Um, create a a set of simultaneous um, ideas. I mean, it's like Nietzsche said, do I contradict myself? Well, then I contradict myself, you know, because actually my my PhD thesis was all about paradox and about how to encompass paradox and how to encompass opposite points of view at the same time. Um, And I think that, again, going back to that, you know, why I wasn't so interested in history was, that you know, I didn't want to get stuck on one point of view because there were clearly multiple points of view and there were points of view that I didn't even know yet and now we're seeing. So I think that idea of, um, to me, it, it, I, I do try to write, not every poem, but I try to, you know, one thing I've been working on certainly in this book is trying to have things that don't resolve, that have multiplicity and oppositional meaning and multiple simultaneous meaning, Um while also hopefully not being too ingestible, like so you can actually go through it and enjoy it, but then sort of you know, feel the, the interplay of that complexity. Because yes. that's what I think is more close to quote-unquote truth.
0: Yes, and, and and I suppose in your case in particular, you've got all these creativity practices. And I suppose it would be impossible to have those things operate, um, you know, in, in separate kind of compartments, that they, they must work together. I mean, there's a kind of... Um, you know, there's a sense of the theatre and the sense of the dance and a sense of that musicality happening throughout the poetry that I feel is, you know, is really very
1: um, vivid. Oh well, I, I think that's a really beautiful thing for you to say. Um, as I mentioned, I think when I posted that on Facebook, I um, it, it's sometimes been hard for me, sort of making my way through the world, doing different things because. I feel like people will somehow think there's something lesser if I'm doing some different things, but I do, I have worked extremely hard over many years to, you know, bring my technical skills to the highest standard in the areas that I work in. And I don't work in every area, but, um, but I think they have also, yeah, bled into each other, fed each other, inspired each other, uh, bounced off each other, and I've also created works that that intermingle them but even if they're not works that intermingle them in an official sense um like a or hybrid work I, I do think that uh i really appreciate that you are kind of I, as i hear it saying that having done those other things allows me some different perspectives which enlivens and enriches the poetry that that's Music to my ears, thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're welcome. It's lovely to read that sort of thing, and especially it's it's a, as a reader, you know, it's it's a delight to find those other creative practices, which, of course, you know, either as a reader I might dabble in or watch in different contexts. But you know, all of these things come together in threads yeah. on the page, which is absolutely beautiful.
1: Um, well, it's, it's so interesting that you know the ancient Greeks, you know, the, the plays we read as plays were actually performed with, you know, choreography and, you know, uh, acting and music. And I think that um, I, it's not that I don't think one can work in the, in the more compartmentalised art forms, but I I don't think one needs to shut it down. And I think that's one of the things we can also learn from, you know, Indigenous and First Nations cultures, which have a very seamless integration of their art forms. Mm. Um, yeah.
0: Yes. I, I particularly like, and you've said this in, in that marvellous interview you did with uh, Sam, Samuel Elliot, who also sometimes interviews for me as well.
1: Um, oh, and, wonderful uh, questions, yeah.
0: Yeah, it was great. And, and one of the things you talked about was the freedom inherent in the performance of self and this creation of character.
1: So yes.
0: Again, you have this kind of both a construct and a truth, um, which, is, which is powerful.
1: Yes. Well, I am… I, um, didn't want this is not a confessional book. This is not sort of Robert Lowell um uh Sylvia Plath territory. Um I think that everything in the book is true and felt and there's nothing you know, they're the whimsical things, but it, it's full of things that I felt, and I think most things that I've written, I have experienced or felt on some level. But it's not autobiographical in the sense that, oh, well, who was that person, or who's this speaking to? Or, um, and it was it was liberating, to, as you say, to find a play with those things and to create um, to create in a way this sort of uh, narrative, this sort of story, um, which basically, I guess, the first part is you know, introducing this character who's quite quirky and has all these issues with what is the nature of truth and who they are and their consciousness, and then they meet another person. and There's this very vibrant, um, dynamic relationship, and then that person, something happens to them, and it's a kind of a, a mourning um and a sadness and a disconnection. And then the final section, the captain of the men of death, is a sort of um, a grappling of that first character again with their own mortality. Um, and I, that was really quite, um, liberating to play and interplay between the personal and the, and the, and the, the narrative. It, it's a, a light play. But I was always inspired by, um, um, Dr. Jivago. Uh, I always wanted to write a novel with poems in it, and I've done a little bit of that stuff, but, you know, there's this sort of, that, that there's a, a character that you can explore that character because I think sometimes with your, through a character you you can make identifications and all readers can make identifications and make connections and um, so yeah I'm hoping that sort of works as a as a sort of structure it's a play between between different forms between very personal and a little bit more third person and abstracted even though it's from the writer. To the reader, so it's actually second person. So it's a lot of things going on at once.
0: Wonderful. Look, we, we are nearly out of time. Um, but I'd love to just have one last little poem. Um, oh, sure. And because we opened with the first poem of the book, and because again, this is perfectly um, set up to end the book, could I possibly ask you to finish off with Code Call for Angels, which is page 111?
1: Sure. I, I haven't, haven't read this out loud before either. Code Calls for Angels. This was a day that was planned. This was a day that existed in the future long before it existed in the present. This was a day that by the time it finally arrived had been lived a thousand times before. This was a day that even though the days before were full of storm and drung and everything that could possibly distract you, you called off the search to be happy.
0: It almost seems like the perfect integration of the complex poems and the, of the condensed poems.
1: I'm so glad you said that because I'll just tell you a little story, which is I had done the whole manuscript, and it's always this tricky place when you have a manuscript and then you write a new poem and you're know, writing some things, and it's like I really think this poem should go in there, but am I going to ruin the structure because it ends so strongly with the captain of men of death? But I had a very strong feeling that you know, you want to be able to go to a book and look at the first and the last poems and the last poem before is way too long for that. And I wanted to create this, this ending, as you say, just like they have the beginning. So gee, thanks for picking up that, that it works.
0: <laughs> it, does. it does. It works beautifully. Um, and that is definitely all we have time for. But thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me today, Richard. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you, Meg. It's absolutely my pleasure as well. Thank you for all of your interviews and reviews. They're a very great benefit to us all.
0: Thank you. Bye for now.
1: Bye.